Hello, welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. The coronavirus COVID-19 crisis is having a devastating effect on the lives of millions of people. A huge toll has already been paid, lives have been taken, others have been ruined. All of us, at the very least, have had our lives disrupted in one way or another. But what of the charity sector? How has coronavirus highlighted the need for this sector and what has the government done to support the sector? How dependent on the charity sector is the state? What will become of the thousands of charities and the people and causes they support struggling to survive this pandemic? In this episode, we speak to an authority on the charity landscape, Andrew Perkis OBE. It was a real privilege speaking with Andrew a few weeks ago. He has a fascinating and insightful knowledge. So without further ado, here is Andrew Perkis, OBE, speaking to me about the changing nature of charity. I'm delighted to be joined today by Andrew Perkis, OBE, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us for Charity Chats. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about, uh, about your experience and background, first of all? Yes, I was a civil servant ages ago, but in 1980, uh, my career in the uh, charity sector began. So I worked as the assistant director or the director chief executive of a, of a number of uh, national charities in different subject areas. Uh, and I've also been the chair or vice chair of seven UK charities, uh, again, dealing with different sort of subject matters. And I was, uh, from 2006 to 2010, a board member of the Charity Commission. So I look at the sector from different angles at the same time. While we're recording this, we're in the middle, well, I don't know if it's the middle, the beginning, probably not the end of the COVID-19 pandemic which is uh, which has hit uh, the world um, and and part of that of course is it's hit charities in a big way I suppose really we're talking today about charity and whether there's no better time for charity than now maybe if we start by if I can ask you what do we mean by charity and and has this definition changed yes the definition has changed in the sense that over the years, since particularly since the 1990s, um, the kinds of subject matter and activities that are charitable have expanded. So, for example, the promotion of human rights has become recognised as a charitable purpose and various sorts of community development and the prevention of poverty as well as the elimination of poverty. Uh, So those are quite important changes Um, and one of the issues that we have in talking about charities now is that they cover so many different kinds of activities. I think you'll be aware that quite often people talk as if charities really uh, are operate in the social services, social services and health. It's a sort of underlying assumption that that is the heartland of charities. But of course, charities are involved in the planning system, in uh, conserving the, the countryside, in wildlife, in education of all sorts and shapes and sizes, 
uh, in um, the efficiency of the armed forces. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of causes that are charitable, and it's quite important that we remember that. We don't just stereotype charities as if they're all about helping vulnerable people. They're not. Um, of course, some of the things about charities do not change and have not changed, and uh, the crucial defining characteristics of charities are that they have a charitable purpose, one of those purposes that Parliament has decided should be charitable, uh, and that they are formally registered as a charity. Of course, there are lots of organisations in the wider civil society that are not charities. And so we, we need to be careful not to speak as if civil society and charities are interchangeable terms. They're not the same thing. Um, and uh, charities must be independent. This is absolutely kind of core characteristic. Um, uh, and they uh, must be voluntary organisations. You know, they can't exist because somebody else tells them that they must exist. Uh, they must be there because uh, a group of citizens has got together and decided that there's an issue of some sort, there's a cause of some sort that is charitable and they want to do something about it. Uh, so those are the unchanging core characteristics of charities, plus the fact that they must be for the public benefit. They can't be for the, for the benefit of Sam Davis and Andrew Perkins. They've got to be, uh, they, you know, they can't just be for the benefit of the super rich or for people with red hair or whatever. They, they've got to be uh, there to benefit a significant slice of the public. And that's absolutely crucial. Uh, and that's partly why um, the trustees of charities are still overwhelmingly volunteers because uh, the public needs to know that the motivation for this organization um, is love, not money. They're not in it because they want to earn money. They're in it because they believe in the cause. Since the 90s, um, things, have, things have changed a bit. And, and in terms of the, the coronavirus, presumably um, that's changing the landscape of what, how charities are defined and how they're operating? It's certainly shed an important light on where charities have actually got to. Uh, traditionally, uh, you might say after the, after the foundation of the welfare state, that essential services are carried out by the state because once parliament realizes they're essential uh, it's very important that they take place everywhere uh, and not rely anymore on the happenstance of charity um, and that therefore you might assume that uh, essential services are state services and charitable services insofar as their services and, uh, and not advocacy and campaigning and so on uh, are, are desirable but they're not essential. Now, that assumption um, has become increasingly untenable over recent years uh, for a couple of different reasons, I think. Uh, one reason is that um, the government and, uh, has become rather more stingy uh, in the money that it pays when it's commissioning services on contract from charities. 
And so increasingly, charities have found themselves having to subsidize the cost of those so-called state services from their own charitable funds. And so uh, that has blurred the distinction so that uh, state services have become, to that extent, dependent on charities and charitable fundraising to keep those services going. So that's one big change and a rather serious one for the charities involved. Um, and the second is that uh, charities um, do all sorts of things that you and I might perhaps want to argue should be seen as essential, but perhaps particularly because we've been through a period of restraint uh, in public expenditure uh, and we've had a government that, that doesn't really wholeheartedly believe in the, in the expansion of the state. Um, those services have remained mostly charitable. And now here I'm thinking about all sorts of services for uh, very disabled children, uh, say for children with autism and, or, or uh, heavy social deprivation. Um, one might be thinking of the, the sadly topical subject of those who are abused in their own home, including, of course, uh, battered women and so forth. And, and the, these are, um, are, are very acute uh, social and human needs that are still, to a large extent, dependent on the charity sector, um, even if you might say they certainly are essential, you know, in a civilized society. Um, so if you put those two things together, a, a lot of very important services for and with very vulnerable people uh, and the fact that charities are having to subsidize state commissioning and contracts for services, We've got a very mixed picture that you could, that it's quite clear that what many people call essential um, is what charities are now doing in many, many cases. And this has very much been highlighted through the uh, coronavirus crisis because you've had the charities going to the government saying, look, what we're doing is essential from the point of view of human need and even from the point of view of the state's responsibilities, but certainly from the point of view of getting through this crisis without unnecessary damage to the most vulnerable people and our recovery as well from the, the virus later. Uh, we are an absolutely essential part of the picture, but the government has been somewhat reluctant to acknowledge that because in their minds, Charity shouldn't be essential, you know, charity should be desirable, lovely things to have, gentle, but not really essential. So uh, this has been why there's been a lot of uh, frustration with, in certain respects, um, government and politicians on the one hand and charity representatives on the other, sort of speaking past each other, not quite, uh, not quite understanding each other's worlds. So um, it has shed an important light on the importance of what a lot of charities are doing. And um, of course, that's not to say that 
every charity's services are essential because there are still a lot of charities that do things that are very desirable, uh, very innovative, uh, important to the people who benefit, but who, you know, you couldn't actually say that everything that they're doing is is 100% essential for the, for the survival and recovery of society. Charities often are not like that. You know, charities uh, uh, are not all essential, but it's now clear that a lot of them are. And, and I suppose is, is one measure of how essential charity is. Could, could an argument be that if a charity does, or a lot of charities do, rely predominantly on the, the philanthropic giving of, of supporters, not the government, could there be an argument that if, if a charity can't raise the funds, it's not deemed as essential or even desirable by the public? Well, uh, that, that's an argument. But, um, of course... Um, we know from a lot of experience that particularly charities that are working with unpopular groups of people who are nonetheless human beings, um, it's very difficult to support adequate uh, services from uh, fundraising from members of the public because uh, where they have a choice, if they choose to give at all, Many members of the public prefer to give to, to children, to people who they regard as sort of vulnerable through absolutely no fault of their own, uh, or they have a passion for animals, and, or they are very religious and they feel they must give priority to their religion. Um, and so therefore, when it comes to um, uh, unattractive, uh, if you like, um, drug addicts, uh, alcoholics, uh, people with combined problems of, uh, of uh, imprisonment, um, uh, antisocial background, uh, and, and so on. Um, those kinds of causes really struggle uh, against, in competition with those other um, demands for charitable funds. And uh, any um, uh, civilised society, I think, without sounding pre preaching, uh, needs to attend to unpopular as well as relatively popular uh, groups of people and their needs in order to bring society together around good standards uh, and not perpetuate um, terrible inequalities uh, and perpetuate the problems where sectors of society are, if you like, marginalised and outcast and cast in the role of being antisocial and criminal and so on. So uh, it's not, it's, it's uh, an oversimplification to say that if, if a, a cause is worthwhile or if it's essential, you can rely on the public to support it. That is actually not correct. been a couple of comments from uh, government ministers around the fact that you know some some uh, charities will fail and um, as, as some businesses will fail and should there be an arbiter or is there an arbiter of which charities should or shouldn't fail I know that the government's um, announced 750 million 
for uh, charities recently. And I know there's been criticism against that because it's um, a few few weeks ago, I think it was back in uh, March, the NCBO and a number of other charity bodies said that we need 4.3 billion just to cover the shortfall in the first three months, March, April, May, I think it was, in terms of uh, a loss of fundraising. Um, but uh, it, is, is it the Charity Commission or, or the government or someone else's role to really um, say, okay, which charities, if charities are going to fail, which ones should fail, which ones shouldn't? Well, overall, um, only the government is in a position to be able to uh, save charities in the national interest if they believe that uh, those charities are doing sufficiently essential and important work in the interests of society. Nobody else is in a position to save charities. I mean, apart from charities themselves, of course, their supporters and donors will do what they can, but they can't decide, but they can't decide when a charity is in difficulties, whether it should be saved or not. The only people who might be in a position to save the charity uh, are, um, by and large, are the government. I mean, the, on a much smaller scale, um, individual uh, grant-giving charitable trusts, for example, or other funding bodies, could say, well, uh, I think, we think, the Board of Trustees in charge of those bodies, it really it ultimately could say, we think th these charities are so excellent and so important that we will step in and uh, donate, give them some a grant so that they don't fail. I mean, that's going on on a small scale and individual philanthropists might do it on a relative, on a small scale. But if you're, look, if you're looking at the question as a general question, sector one, it's really only the government that has the resources to be able to say this and this and this and this type of charities must not be allowed to fail and therefore we will come up with a, a, a fund uh, backed by the taxpayer and Bank of England and so forth that, that, that will enable those charities to survive. Um, so uh, although for individual charities there are a lot of options of grant giving bodies of one sort or another that might think them so important, so deserving that they will step in with the grant, overall taking the sector as a whole it is a matter really for government to decide how much they are prepared to do to save a lot of charities that would otherwise go under. For those charities that do fail um, to survive during the current crisis, who is likely to pick up the, uh, the work that they are currently doing and the, and the people that they're currently supporting? Well, I think it's very difficult to give a single answer that would fit everybody to that question. I think it will depend an enormous amount on the nature of the work, uh, the size and nature of the of the charities concerned. Um, I'm afraid that in some cases, um, I think this would be especially true of um, lo many local charities. If they disappear, nobody will pick up the pieces and that local area will be the poorer 
Uh, I mean, already, of course, you have the situation where in different parts of the country, um, there are different levels of charitable presence uh, and charitable support going on. Um, and it, so in some areas, you get absolutely excellent charities at work that just are not there in other areas. And I think you will get a situation where there are a lot more areas where that work simply isn't happening. So that's one uh, rather miserable outcome that I think we have to expect in some cases. In others, of course, there's the possibility of um, some of the work or even all of the work of a, of a charity that is, uh, is unable to go on being taken over in some measure by some other charitable, charitable organization. Uh, you might get um, um, some mergers, perhaps, in, in certain cases where um, charities become too weak after the financial pounding of the lockdown uh, and have no option really but to try and join forces with one or more other organizations to try and salvage, salvage what they can and perhaps gradually rebuild. Uh, so that, that too may be part of the mix. So I think there's going to be um, a very different kind of effects for different kinds of organizations. Uh, and it's, it's quite hard to predict. And I think a lot of charities right now can't really predict whether they're going to survive. If so, uh, how much of what they have previously done, they will be able to continue to do. Uh, and exactly what's the most likely outcome for them if they if they think that they're getting near to uh, collapse or being unsustainable. I think there's a great deal of doubt amongst many charities right now as we speak uh, and it's a time of great stress and tension for many uh, staff and trustees of charities who don't know the answers to those questions yet. Is there a chance that we might look back on this time as the starting pistol for um, a renaissance or a, um, a big uh, advancement in the innovation of how people are charitable and the devices that, um, or the organizations that we can use to live our kind of charitable selves and do more good and make a fairer world? Is there a, is there a chance that that, that could come out of this? I, I think there must be a chance of that. Um, they say never let a good crisis go to waste. And um, I think it's very important that people in all sectors, but certainly people in charities, are thinking hard about those questions as best they can, despite the fact that many of them are distracted, just trying to keep going at all. Uh, and of course that makes it very difficult, but I think that it's very important uh, in trying to make something of this very, very difficult and stressful experience, to try to draw the lessons as to what kind of better society, if possible, can emerge from this 
awful experience. Uh, and I think that um, charitable organizations, with a particular view, of course, on their own cause and their own beneficiaries and users, are thinking hard about how they can uh, give voice to their beneficiaries and their cause so that it is preserved and enhanced for the future. Um, and to try not to, to be completely uh, obsessed, if you like, with the here and now in the middle of the crisis. Uh, because we, we need to be ready for the gradual, eventual easing of the lockdown. And we need to be ready with our suggestions, our demands, our campaigns, our alliances that will enable our beneficiaries, whoever they are, uh, to recover and be in a stronger position and have a fairer shot in our society than they have had in the past or during this crisis. So uh, it's an important opportunity. I also want to mention that um, although during the, uh, the height of, of the crisis, attention is very naturally and rightly on people and particularly vulnerable people, we also have to remember that lurking there is a major environmental crisis, which has gone slightly into the, into the background, but it's not going to stay in the background for very long. And so uh, a further challenge to the very many charities that are involved in the long-term uh, adaptation and transformation of society to try to head off the worst extremes of climate change and other uh, environmental disasters, their moment will come and they need to be ready for it. Uh, and of course, they're not alone. We, we know that the same is true of the appalling housing situation for many people in our country, uh, which has been very much highlighted in sort of inequalities in housing during the, during the crisis. Uh, so at many different levels, our time will come for these absolutely vital causes where charities need to be in the forefront. And so we most certainly need to be thinking hard about what our recommendations, our policies, our demands are going to be uh, when uh, society comes out of this crisis and decides what kind of society we're going to have in the future. Andrew Perkis, OBE, thank you for contributing to Charity Chat. It's been a pleasure, thank you. So there you go, dear listener. A big thank you to Andrew Perkis, OBE, for a fascinating insight into how the remit of charities has changed and perhaps will continue to change and evolve during and after the current coronavirus crisis. 
I very much hope that Andrew will join us again in the coming weeks and months to share his knowledge and expertise. Speaking with Andrew reminded me of a point from previous guest of the show, Deborah Alcock-Tyler, who you can hear in episode 88, who commented that the social and fiscal economy benefit that charities provide society are not sufficiently recognised by the current government. This was in the context of a widely criticised under-support package that was announced a few weeks ago, and this certainly seems to be the case. Andrew explained how charities are increasingly having to subsidise the essential state services that they run with their own charitable funds, which has blurred the lines between the essential services funded by the state and those that are desirable, which are largely and historically run by charities. I, for one, hope that government ministers and charity leaders will find a better way to communicate more effectively between themselves to help the government realise the deep need that society has for those many charities, large and small, national and local, that continue to deliver for society in an essential way. While the current government has made the British state bigger than ever with the support of millions of furloughed workers, including many charity workers, the monetary support for charities has not been enough to cover even a quarter of the short-term shortfall. What is clear is that charities are more relevant than ever and being asked to work harder in many cases with far less resources in order to support our society. I truly hope that those with power see that a fairer, better society for all requires more support for the sector. But in the meantime, as the cultural anthropologist Margaret Mead once said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Thank you for listening, dear listener. A big thank you also to our corporate sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for the beautiful website design. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. RR Yard Photography for the lovely pro bono images on our website. And Forest of Fools, who have been playing throughout the show and playing us out right now. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. And remember, do what you can. Cheerio. Bye-bye.